The story behind this is my buddy Brian that pastors in North Carolina, he was telling me this story about the Azusa Street Revival. Uh, revival is just a loose term for the various movements and things that God has done throughout history. And in my opinion, the Azusa Street Revival is the most significant thing that's happened to the church post-Reformation. Um, so the Reformation, I think I'm ringing a little bit, Tim. Um, the Reformation happened about 500, and, actually it'll be 501 years ago on Halloween. And uh, that started the church on, on a path toward Protestantism and a lot of different things. But after that, I think the most significant thing that happened to the church is, was in the early 1900s in the Azusa Street Revival. Out of Azusa, if you're unfamiliar with it, came the largest missions movement in history. Um, three or four major Pentecostal denominations. Uh, Reinhard Bonnke, how many of you know Reinhard Bonnke? Okay, his grandfather came to know Christ because a missionary from Azusa went out to Germany and went to this little town by accident, by accident of the Holy Ghost. And, and there was this sick man there, and he prayed for this man, and he got healed. The only guy in town that, that got healed, but uh, he prayed for him, and he gave his life to Jesus. Well, as a result of that, this man, Reinhard Bonnke, grew up in a Christian household knowing Jesus, and he became the greatest evangelist in history, at least numerically. Millions and millions of people owe their experience with Jesus to the ministry of Reinhard Bonnke. So um, without Azusa and the, and the uh, subsequent movements of God like Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, et cetera, et cetera, without all that, statistically, the church worldwide would be in decline. But it's not. Thank God the church is growing faster than ever. And uh, estimates are by 2050, there will be a billion uh, Christians of the Pentecostal charismatic persuasion. Now, we, we honor, you don't have to be like that to be a Christian or whatever. I'm just saying it's a significant move of God. Does that, does that make sense? And so we uh, uh, honor Azusa, and we're thankful for what God did in Azusa. But my friend Brian, he was studying this because we're interested in these things, and we want to know, well, why, why do moves of God end? It's a great question, right? Why, why are there these great uh, revivals and things happen and yet, you know, I've talked to people and they're like, oh, I got to be part of this move of God and, and et cetera. And, and, you know, why do those things end? And I think there's a lot of different reasons, but Brian told me this story that I didn't know about Azusa and that was that there was a secretary there and she kept the mailing list that had all the people's contact information that attended the meetings there in, in Azusa. And she had a falling out with the leadership there in the, in the uh, church, and she left. And when she left, she took the mailing list. And they didn't have Facebook and Twitter and whatever. And so as a result of this, they weren't able to communicate with all the people that used to come to the meetings, and people thought, well, the meetings must be ending. And they attributed a, lar a large portion of the, de the decline of those meetings to this simple thing that, that they lost the mailing list. It's amazing how history can turn on small things like that. And I thought, uh, 
you know, Brian and I were like, oh, God, th thank God for, you know, all our data is in the cloud. You know, it's all backed up. <laughs> you know, thank God for modern information, you know. But, but really, as I thought about it, what I realized was that the major, the major thing that, that brought this, this downfall was this, this tearing apart of these relationships. And that movements of God, they hinge on our ability to get along with one another. Matthew 18, 19 is one of my favorite scriptures. It says, where two of you agree on earth is touching anything, my Father in heaven will do it for you. How many of you know that scripture? How many of you know the context? If you read Matthew 18, it's all about relationships. And the context is a circumstance where the disciples were not getting along with one another. And I like to read this like this. Jesus is looking at the, the disciples and he says, if two of you, Peter and John, can agree about anything, I will do that for you. There seem to be certain breakthroughs and things that God has for us that are reserved for times when we can get along with people that are different than us and walk in unity of purpose. Even if we don't necessarily walk in perfect unity in other areas. And uh, I've just been thinking about this and I, I want... I, want, I deeply want to pass on my values and experiences and things that I've had with God to my kids. I want to live in a culture that, that is able to connect with the next generation. And I see my life largely. God spoke to me in Bible college out of Jude verse 3. And he said, I need you to contend for the faith of your fathers. And he was talking to me about that it's, it's uh, part of my responsibility, part of my destiny to make sure that things I've received from my spiritual fathers like Andrew Womack and Pastor Lawson and so forth, that those things make it to my generation and beyond. Because what we've seen throughout history is that revelation and things can be lost. And I deeply admire Pastor Bill Johnson out at uh, Bethel Church, and he talks a lot about how he wants to be the first generation to really pass on revival. Now, I mean, I think if you look at like the transition from David to Solomon and things, that there have been times when one generation moved beyond what, what the previous one did. But nevertheless, it's just the reality that often things die out after one generation. And sometimes even before that. And many times it happens because we just can't get along with one another. So I'm going to spend the next several weeks talking about how to do relationships well. And I think sometimes in, in circles like we're in, people think, well, this, I'm not excited about this because this isn't spiritual. Well, look, it, I mean, it's not supernatural or whatever. Look, I've, I've prayed for a lot of sick people and I've prayed for a lot of marriages. Seeing a marriage come back from the dead is just as awesome as seeing, as seeing a person come back from the dead, all right? There's, it's, it's, and moreover, if you want to see supernatural stuff happen, the context in which that occurs is healthy relationships. It is. And I, I think this is a thing that tends to be lacking in... Uh, you know, charismatic circle sometimes is, is a focus on how to do relationships well. So we're going to go after this and hopefully, hopefully help, help ourselves, all right? 
uh, we want your relationships to thrive, not just survive. So principle number one that I want to talk to you about is, is that we want to have a culture of honor here. I want to develop, and I think we're doing this, but more and more I want our church to be a place where honor is the norm. I try to do this in my family, and we want to uh, model that here, and we want it to help, help you and help your families and, and so forth. Danny Silk, if, if you haven't read the book, he wrote an amazing book called Culture of Honor. I've read it three or four times. We did it as a small group about a year and a half ago, um, but a lot of you weren't here. So I encourage you to read that book. Uh, but this is how heaven works. What's, what is honor? Honor is when we see people the way that God sees them and we treat them accordingly. Honor is when I can look in Josh and I see the innate value that he has that is detached from his outward performance. Because his outward performance may not always line up with, with his innate value. But what honor does is it looks past people's flesh, it looks past people's failings, and it sees their potential in Christ, and it treats them accordingly. 2 Corinthians 5.16 is the greatest relationship verse, I think, of all time. Pastor Greg alluded to it last week. It says, Henceforth know we no man after the flesh. How many people are you allowed to know after the flesh if you're a Christian? None. That means I have zero right anymore as a Christian to look at people's outward behavior, their speech, the way they look, and identify them after that. I'm required to see something beyond that because, because what we've got to understand is that as Christians, how many people did Jesus die for? Everybody. 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 Now, not everybody has made a decision to accept that, but because Jesus died for everybody, He fundamentally and forever altered the potential future of every person. Is that true? Yes. The moment Jesus died on the cross, the potential of every human life was fundamentally transformed forever. And I now have, a, have an ability, but not just an ability, a responsibility to see people and treat them after that potential. It's called honor. 1 Peter 2.17 actually says that we're to honor all men. That's hard because not all men are behaving in ways that are honorable. But again, honor is not about what you earn. It's about a decision I make about how to treat you based on your innate value because you were created in God's image and you have gifts and anointings and callings that come from Him regardless of whether or not you're living those out. Does that, does that make sense? What honor does is it helps us to get past this thing in, in psychology and sociology called the fundamental attribution error. Anybody heard of that? One person. Excellent. <laughs> well, the, the fundamental attribution error 
is, is this idea that when, when we make a mistake, we tend to attribute it to just, oh, I had a brain fart, I screwed up. I'm a good person, but I did something foolish. Right? In other words, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But when other people hurt us, we tend to attribute it to their character. And we say, that person did that because they are a jerk. They didn't screw up. They didn't have a brain fart. They didn't miscommunicate. They're evil. And that's why they did that. And we identify people after their flesh, after their outward behavior. And what we don't realize is that when we do that, we, we limit the potential of people. I learned this as, as a teacher. You know, as, as a teacher, and I, I used to teach high school, and, you know, if I, had, if I had a student and they would come to me and they'd say, I'm going to fail this test. Well, how many of you know if that's their attitude, they don't have a much good shot of doing good on it? Right. Well, what's, what's my responsibility as a teacher? Should I look at them and say, well, you know what, you probably will. You're a loser and, you, you know, you probably aren't going to accomplish very much. You laugh, but, but sometimes people say that to people. Probably if I interviewed some of you, you've, you've had somebody say something like that to you. And those words, they get written on your heart and they start to shape your identity and they limit your potential if you start to believe it. So I have a responsibility not to do that. I've got to look at the kid and say, no, you're going to do good. You can do good. Well, I didn't study. Well, <laughs> you got five minutes. Study right now. Honor helps us avoid that fundamental attribution error by deliberately choosing to look for the best in people. We just want to believe the best. Well, what if people do something wrong and they hurt us? Well, we've just got to say to ourselves, well, that's not who they really are. One of my favorite stories that illustrates this, there's a... Um, uh, a man by the name of Graham Cook. He's a great uh, prophetic teacher. If you want to understand the prophetic, I'd encourage you to check him out. But he tells this story. One time he went to a, a church and he was ministering there. And uh, there was a pastor and the associate pastor and all the staff and stuff. And, and he's praying for these folks. And he sees in his head a vision of the, the senior pastor and the associate pastor. And the senior pastor's facing like this and he's doing all this stuff and taking care of stuff. And the associate comes up behind him with a knife and starts sticking it in him like this over and over. So it doesn't take a whole lot of insight to understand what that means. The, asso the associate pastor was going behind the pastor's back and, and dishonoring him and saying all kinds of negative stuff and doing like Absalom to David. Everybody with me? Yeah. All right. Why did God show that to Graham? Well, I know why, Pastor. It's so he could unveil that guy's sin and make everybody embarrassed and, and you know, fix it. No. God showed that to Graham because he trusted that Graham would know how to use that information properly in the context of honor. 
It's fine to get prophetic insight. It's fine to understand stuff about people, but how you use the information God shows you, that's a, that's a whole other skill entirely. It's a big yeah. deal. And, you know, it doesn't take a ton of prophetic insight to figure out what's wrong with people. Just hang out with them for a little bit. What you've got to do is, is learn to see past that. Don't identify people after their flesh and see their potential. So here's what Graham does. He calls both those guys up and he says, I see the two of you and your brothers and I see you standing back to back. And he looks at the associate pastor and he says, and I see you and there are all these attacks coming against your pastor and you're warding them off. And God says of you that you are a great defense of your pastor and that you protect him from the lies of the enemy and the attacks that would come against him. That's what he said. Well, the guy, as you might imagine, the associate pastor, he starts crying, you know, ah. And everybody, everybody thinks, oh, man, that, you know, he nailed that guy. He, he, he just read his mail. He just read his heart. Such a great word. Well, the associate pastor comes to Graham later and says, and says that word you gave, you don't, you don't know. I'm, and he starts to confess. And Graham says, I know, you're a scoundrel. You've been stabbing him in the back for however many months. And the guy's jaw about hits the floor. And Graham says this, that's what you were doing, but it's not who you are. Amen. Honor changed that guy's life, changed the culture of the church. We treat people according to their potential, not what they're presently doing. Is that a good word? Okay. How do we learn to honor people? How many of you would like to do that? Well, first of all, you've got to understand where dishonor comes from. Why do we dishonor people? Why do we have this desire to criticize and defame and destroy and tear other people down? Where does that originate? And why, this is a question, I, I, I understand why it's in the world, but why is there so much of it in the church? You know, and why, why, is, why is that? And I asked the Lord, and... And he showed me it's, it's because dishonor comes from an orphan heart. It's bred, it's birthed in an orphan heart. It's bred in rejection. What, what's the problem with, with being an orphan? You know, because some people are like, well, I don't identify with that. I had good parents or whatever. Look, how many of you have been rejected by somebody? Everybody's experienced rejection, right? And when rejection comes, it says to us, you know what, you... You aren't valuable. You, you are unwanted, unneeded. You aren't special. You're unloved. And it, it creates this insecurity. Right? Yes. On the inside of us. And that insecurity, if you don't understand how to deal with it and get rid of it, it can cause you to start to attack and tear down other people in order to make yourself feel better. That's basically it. And what I've found in the church is that, um, and I'm sure this exists in all parts of the church, but I was just looking at church history, and I, last year I studied a lot about the Reformation because it was the 500th year anniversary. I did this whole series about it. And um, 
Protestantism, which I'm, I'm all for the Protestant Reformation, but it was, it was birthed as an orphan. Because Luther, it was not his desire to go and start a new, you know, segment of the body of Christ. He wasn't, he was trying to bring reform. That's why he wrote these 95 theses. But what happened was, over time, he, th there was a splintering, and his spiritual fathers in the Catholic Church, they rejected him, and they branded him a heretic. They said, you're not one of us. And from there, year after year, all these times there's new moves of God and stuff, and all throughout history, the, the old move of God says to the new one, I reject you and you are not one of us. And it's the, it's the saddest thing in, in church history. And I see it even today in, in, you know, this grace movement that God is doing, which I'm really thankful for. He's, he's revitalizing the message of grace and, and sharing it with people. Um, but even though we have this grace theology and, and a lot of people understand that God loves them unconditionally and stuff, it's like they still carry around a spirit of rejection because, they're, because of all the legalistic churches kicked them out or whatever. That deserved a better amen. So, so I know I'm preaching to somebody, okay? I'm not, I haven't seen this as much here, but when I, when I was, you know, in Colorado, we, we were in this grace hotbed, you know? And I, I loved this because it set me free, and I love the message of grace. But if the message of grace causes you to hate and dishonor spiritual fathers that even if they were legalists, then you haven't fully understood grace. I got I to gotta have vertical grace. Thank God God loves me unconditionally, but that's got to translate into horizontal grace. It's got to translate into honor. And I don't want to dishonor people. I don't want to attack and criticize people, even if they reject me. And I know what it is to be rejected. I mean, I had an encounter with the Lord when I was 14 or 15, and I went and explained it to my pastor, and he said, well, that was invented in the 60s by hippies. <laughs> you know, and you ought not do that. And I mean, that, you know, that historically wasn't true, but, but anyway, it, it, it didn't feel good. And I had a lot of broken relationships with, with spiritual fathers over the years. But that doesn't give me the right to exempt myself from wanting to be in a spiritual family and have a spiritual father. And so I don't want to carry around. I worry about us carrying around this spirit of, of rejection in this, this orphan heart. So here's, I think, the cure for dishonor. Are you ready for him? How many of you want to honor people? All right, here's how you have to do it. In order to honor somebody, in order to give honor to someone, you have to have some to give. That means you've got to allow God to honor you. If you, if you want to treat people as though they have value and they're worth the blood of Jesus... You've got to settle in your own heart that you're worth the blood of Jesus. That you have value, that you're significant in the kingdom, that you matter, that you're a king. Only kings can treat other people like kings. Is that true? 
In heaven, in Revelation 4, there's this scene where there are people sitting on what around the throne of God? Thrones. You understand what an honor it is to sit in the presence of a king? Let alone the king of all kings. This is how heaven operates. This is what God does. He breathes out. It's, it's His breath, and it's the breath of honor. It's the giving of value. It's the conferring of significance. Everything He does speaks of people's significance, worth, their identity. And so He, he breathes out, and he, he creates thrones, and He puts people there, and He sits them on the throne. Then what do they do? They get off the throne, and they cast their crown. What are they doing? They're just giving the honor back that God gave them. That's how it works. But the thing that, that really heals the, the orphan heart or the, um, the, the spirit of rejection that people carry around is look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. You've got to understand that your acceptance and your love in the family of God predates any rejection by man. Let's read this scripture in Ephesians 1.4. Just as God has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ unto Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. That is some phenomenal scripture. I can't get over that. That says that your destiny... Before the world began, was to be adopted into the family of God. I don't care if, if, you know, your parents didn't want you and they gave you up for adoption or whatever. Or, or I don't care if your, your teacher said something negative about you or somebody rejected you. Or you asked a girl out and they said no or whatever. Look, God's acceptance of you predates. It eternally predates and rewrites your history. Your identity is you are accepted in the beloved. You're a child of God. Hallelujah. I've uh, taught this before, but God, God's actually interested in rewriting your history. It's not, it's not that He just wants to fix from here on. It's, it's that... He gets rid of the bad stuff in, in the history. Yeah. If you read Hebrews 11, it talks about Sarah. And it says, Sarah, by faith, received strength to conceive seed and give birth to a child. It says, Sarah was such a person of faith. She believed God. Well, how many of you read the story of Sarah? What, what did she do when God told her she was going to have a baby? She laughed. In the Hebrew, it's, it's a mocking laugh. She made fun of God. She wasn't in faith at all. <laughs> now, later, she must have got in faith. But, but when, you, when, you read, when you read Hebrews 11, there's no mention of that. Why not? Because God edits your past. And what God says becomes true, not just about your future, but about your past. Uh, God spoke to me. He said, he, he, did, did Sarah laugh when I told her that she was going to have a kid? 
No. You know why? Because God wrote it out of the story. I don't know if you're getting that. That's really good news. That's like really, really good news. That means so. So look, this stuff in my past that's causing me to feel rejected and shame and all this stuff. Man, God says, look, what I say about you is from the moment you were before you were even born, I wanted you. You're the son, the daughter that I always wanted. That's the story. And it erases all that other stuff. It's not in the book. You go to heaven, you read the book, the story of my life. Where'd all that stuff go, Jesus? I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> if, you, if you see that, you'll, you'll be happy. <laughs> turn, turn over to Philippians chapter 2. God showed me this a long time ago. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It says, Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. All right, so Jesus thought this way. You should think this way too. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal of God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the fashion of a man, he humbled himself still further and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. All right, this is the story about uh, Jesus' self-emptying, self and it says, Jesus, he was equal with God, but he didn't think he should hold on to that. And he humbled himself and he got low and he became a servant. In church, we celebrate people that get low and, and become a servant. How many of you? Right. I love that. I want to get low. I want to become a servant. But he says, think like Jesus. How did Jesus get low and become a servant? Well, he's in heaven. He's on a throne. And then he gets up and he doesn't demand the, the rights and, and stuff that come along with being a king. Instead, he, he, he comes down to our level and serves people. If you want to serve like Jesus, you have to have a throne to step off of. You got to know you're a king. Now you don't, you don't, well, I'm a, I'm a king. Now you got to give me your parking space. <laughs> I'm a king, so I don't need it. Amen. So you can have it. Yeah. Come on. Yes. So first of all, you got to recognize who you are. That'll, that'll cure your... The rejection problem. And then the next thing you got to do in Psalm 68, 6. I'm doing this a little out of order, but it's all right. It's good. Psalm 68, 6. It says, he sets the solitary, the lonely, the orphan, and families. Don't let previous rejection teach you the lie that you don't need people. It's a great word. You know, I, I had uh, a lot of pain in relationships with with my natural father and spiritual fathers for a long time. And it, it could have been easy for me to adopt an orphan mentality and be like, look, I don't, I don't need any of this and close my heart off to, 
to, to that. Um, but thank God, God brought me, put me with, with my spiritual father, Pastor Lawson, who, who loves Molly and I like his own kids. And, and uh, that healed something in me that, that just a relationship with God couldn't fix. Now, I know that, that might bother some of you, but you need, you need people. Yeah. Unless you live on an island, you know, the Patmos or whatever, <laughs> then, then, you know, you don't need somebody. God will, God will be everything. But you, God created us to be in relationships. And, you know, when Pastor Lawson calls me or I call him, he almost always says, I love you and I'm so proud of you. Now, God says that to me and it heals something in me. But hearing that from a, a spiritual father... That, how many of you understand, that confers honor on me. Why can't I give it away? Because I've got some. I've got some to give. I don't do this perfectly, but I really try hard to walk in this. Somebody was teasing me the other day because I said, well, you're an awesome person. They said, well, you say that to everybody. <laughs> I, I didn't realize. I was like, I guess I do, but I, but I mean it. <laughs> I mean it every time. I really do. And I, I'm not perfect, but I, I really, I try to believe the best about people. And I try to look past their flesh, and I try to just see, see their potential in Christ. So, look, we'd, we'd love to be your spiritual family, and, but, but pray that God would send fathers and mothers into your life and show you what love and acceptance looks like. So that's sort of on an individual basis. Then, then as a church and, you know, corporately, we want to honor our spiritual lineage. I, and, you know, I, I'll tell you things I disagree with, with different parts of the body of Christ and stuff, but I, I really, I don't think I do it perfect. And sometimes I get frustrated about stuff, so I'm working on it. Everybody say the pastor. <laughs> that wasn't very good. Everybody say the pastor, the pastor. is working on it. Working on okay, it. so... I try, I try to disagree in, in honor, and I'm not, I'm not attributing bad stuff to people's character. Amen. Right? And, and so, look, we, we honor, we're Protestants or whatever, but we honor the Catholic Church. We honor the evangelicals. We honor people that, that disagree with us. And, uh, you know, the Bible, even in the New Testament, Ephesians 6, 2 through 3, it says, Honor your father and your mother. That's talking about your natural father and your mother, but it's also talking about your spiritual family. We don't, we don't need to, as, as a church, guys, I, I mean, we don't, we don't need any of this. I'm happy if God, if you like being here and, and, and you want to tell people, do that. But don't, don't say, well, you know, every other church I went to was terrible, but thank God I'm here. Don't do that. Just, you, just say, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I'm where I'm at, Okay. We don't, need to, we don't need a spirit of insecurity where we have to tear down other people. Amen. Along with that, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication uh, come out of your mouth, but only that which ministers grace to the hearers. That means that when you speak graciously, when you speak after people's potential and you say things like Graham Cook said to that guy, you actually change people's potential. You can talk to people in a way that changes what they're capable of. Amen. Or you can limit what they can accomplish through what you say. And then lastly, we want to be slow to be critical of, of the new. You know, there's, there's, 
Well, no, no, okay. Help me be honoring. Okay. Be slow to be critical of, of the new. And even if we disagree with the next generation, we still want to learn to embrace them as sons and daughters. That's my heart, guys. I, I, you know, kids always, they always want to do weird stuff with their hair and diet, whatever. And, you know, kids always want to push the envelope, right? It's spiritually true, too. And what, what do they really want? They, they really want you to look past their, their outward thing and, and say, look, I embrace you as my son and my daughter. Even if you're a little bit weird and it freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. All right, so here's your homework. I don't always give homework, but I'd encourage you to do this. I used to do this um, quite a bit. Uh, just as a way to practice hearing God, pick one to three significant people in your life. It could be a spouse, child, coworker, etc., and ask God, "What do you love about this person? What are some of their best qualities? What do you think about when you think about them?" And then have a piece of paper ready and write down some stuff. And then you can you can give it to them, or you can just find a time later. You say to them, "I really appreciate." blank, blank, blank about you, or I, God says this about you. It'll bless people. I'd love it if you do that. How many of you think it'd be great if somebody did that for you here at church, you know? I'd encourage you, all these people that help us so much in the nursery, you know, ask God, and, you know, and with kids and stuff, and a worship team, ask God, what, is, what does he see about these people? Write some stuff down. Share it. Practice honor. Practice honoring people. You can have the uh, compliment ministry, the encouragement ministry. That's what real prophetic practice looks like. All right, let's all stand up. Hallelujah. If my prayer team could come down here.